Well, today is April 26th, 2020. I'm giving this talk from Roshi's library, <clears throat> locked down here, uh, no one no one within sight. Um, so this is different. This is definitely different. Um, and uh, let's just see how it goes. So the topic that I selected for today is, uh, of course, it's always related to the pandemic, it seems. And my topic is outrage and the pandemic. And um, I, I select this because I myself am susceptible to <clears throat> outrage. Uh, I think a lot of us are sort of aghast at the way our country has responded in many ways uh, to, the, to the epidemic. Uh, our president, I'm sure different people see him in different ways, but uh, sometimes it's just simply unbelievable. And uh, but even setting aside, you know, the special case of Donald Trump, uh, <clears throat> the failure of the CDC to uh, to come up with a uh, a test. Uh, apparently, <clears throat> the CDC was the only agency that was allowed to develop a test, uh, and they blew it. And so I think in the end of uh, February, uh, that, was, that was changed and other uh, agencies and labs were able to start developing their own. And now there are some and, and that's coming online, which is great. And then we've seen so many different responses from governors and mayors. Some of the uh, truly horrendous moves of members of Congress and the administration uh, selling stock based on information that uh, they were not conveying to the public. See people, young people going off for spring, spring break with no concern about spreading the virus and uh, um, a, number of the, a number of them did become sick and I'm sure they, they brought it home. And now we have this phenomenon of uh, these organized resistance demonstrations, people protesting the lockdown. Uh, it's easy to get caught up in all the different things that are going on and the things that we ourselves would do completely differently, that we see completely differently, and uh, just sputter with rage. <clears throat> so, of course, it's important to be informed. It's important to see what's right and what's wrong, at least as, as well as we can. And it's especially important to be paying attention. Uh, we need to know, just for the sake of ourselves and our families, and for the sake of our nation, we need to know what's going on. We need to not just sort of shut our eyes and, and let things uh, do as they will around us. But the question that people like myself have to answer is, do I need to get outraged? Is that, is that the best that I can do? Um, of course, the Buddhist teaching is pretty clear. In the Dhammapada, the Buddha says, how will hate leave him if a man forever thinks he abused me, he hit me, he defeated me, he robbed me? 
Will hate ever touch him who does not think, he abused me, he hit me, he defeated me, he robbed me. There is only one eternal law. Hate never destroys hate. Only love does. <clears throat> so I think what we can say is that our outrage is understandable, but it's not skillful. And uh, I cast about to see uh, what various commentators might be, uh, what their take might be on this sort of secondary epidemic of anger and outrage. And there actually wasn't, uh, wasn't as much as I thought there would be. Uh, one person who wrote quite a bit about it was Glenn Beck, uh, but I'm not using him. Uh, <clears throat> I do have uh, an editorial that was uh, published last year before the epidemic. Uh, we've been outraged about a lot of things for quite a while now, as everybody knows. Uh, this is from February 19th, 2019. It was published in the Richmond Times Dispatch. There's no particular author. It's just uh, the editorial staff of the of that uh, paper. <clears throat> and they start out uh, with a sort of a quote. It was a time when angry words were about the only kind anyone cared to use, when people seemed tired of the reasoning process. Instead of trying to convert one's opponents, it was much simpler just to denounce them, no matter what unmeasured denunciation might lead to. Problems were slipping beyond hope of easy solution. Sectional enmities, economic antagonisms, varying interpretations of the American dream, the tragic, unendurable race problem itself. <clears throat> then the authors say, that's a fair description of our own time. It comes, however, from this hallowed ground, one of historian Bruce Catton's books on the American Civil War, first published in 1956. Alarmists are quick to say we're heading towards another such catastrophe, that is, towards another civil war. That's melodramatic. Melodrama being another form of organizing experience Americans go in for these days to no one's benefit. Still and all, indignation, righteous in the eyes of the individual indulging in it, is dividing Americans in ways that should concern us all. Ask people why they are so angry, and they will supply you with a ready list of all the terrible things the other side is doing to them. They are encouraged in this practice by the alleged experts on TV night after night. A soft answer might turn away wrath, but a hateful one is more likely to get you booked on MSNBC, CNN, or Fox. It's, uh, it's helpful to remember that the indignation that we feel <clears throat> exists on the other side of the aisle. Everybody's indignant. Everybody's outraged. Then they go on and say, anger is a public epidemic in America, says Jean Kim, a psychiatrist who works for the Department of Health and Human Services and teaches at George Washington University. Anger is also addictive, she tells the online magazine Quartz. Outrage gives us an unhappy high we keep trying to replicate, 
Quartz reports, paraphrasing Dr. Kim, like addicts, we chase the next angry high. It's a good point. Uh, it's, it's, we, habit energy is everywhere. The anger that we feel comes more readily to mind because we've indulged it before. As the Buddha says, how will hate ever leave him if a man forever thinks he abused me, he hit me, he defeated me, he robbed me, he gaslit me, he lied to me, he failed me. They go on, here's how Quartz sums up the findings of Jeffrey Berry and Sarah Sobiraj, who teach at Tufts University and have written a book called The Outrage Industry. <clears throat> I didn't get around to reading that book. I'm sure it's interesting, but to quote from it, complex issues are simplified to fit in a tweet or a headline, and the messages make us feel good even while they make us mad. The simplification creates an illusion that problems are easier to solve than they are, Indeed, that all problems would be solved if only they, whoever they are, thought like us. Once activated, a recent Harvard study finds anger can color people's perceptions, form their decisions, and guide their behavior while they remain angry, regardless of whether the decisions at hand are related to the source of their anger. And then they say, how do we get out of this mess? There are no 12-step programs we're aware of for this particular addiction, and there'd have to be millions of support groups to accommodate the need. Well, I have a quibble there. I think every 12-step group actually <laughs> works quite well for this particular addiction. Um, dealing with anger uh, is part of step work. It's part of what we learn in 12-step programs to swing our attention from the faults of others and look at ourselves. It's hard to do when, when, because the most dangerous kind of, of, of anger, the most dangerous kind of outrage, said this many times, is, is justified, justified outrage, righteous wrath. That's the most dangerous because we don't have any check on ourselves. We just go with it. It's so hard to let go of the certainty. And, and we leap from that, from that outrage to mind-reading our opponent, uh, our abusers, our tormentors, uh, imputing to them whatever motives come to our mind, and they're usually not charitable. It's, it's difficult to step back and realize most people, almost all people, I'm not going to say everyone, but almost all people think their opinion, think their actions are justified, are right. They may be wrong, but they're not necessarily they're not necessarily hateful. It's it's, it's um, <clears throat> This whole thing of, of getting outraged and encouraging outrage in people who think like us is a, is a strategy. It's a strategy that's being used today, and it's being used on the left and the right side of the aisle. Uh, 
It's a way of, of motivating your supporters. It's a way of getting people to the polls. The angrier they are, the more likely they are to vote. What is not, what is not good at doing is convincing others. If you don't convince your opponents by indulging in outrage, especially when you sort of go off the rails and you're attacking everything in sight. And so it becomes more and more difficult to develop consensus. This is a time right now when so many people are in danger and in fear for the left and the right to come together. And to some extent that's happened, but to some extent no. There's still people looking to game the situation uh, on both sides, try to find a way to put it to one's advantage. There's an awful lot of eyes on how this is going to affect the presidential election in November, if indeed it happens in November. Then outrage is a business model for the media. There is no question that uh, there is no better clickbait than some outrageous story. Uh, and all of us probably who have digital devices and consume our news that way have uh, found ourselves one time or another sort of clicking idly from one site to another looking for the latest shot and the latest uh, fix for our addiction to outrage and and hopefully seeing other people make mistakes and, and bring shame upon themselves. There was an article uh, that I, I clicked on because I'm interested in Elon Musk, um, really interesting guy to my mind and flawed, of course, as we all are. And uh, it was this business about uh, him promising ventilators to various uh, hospitals and whatnot, and then people claiming, well, there's, well, those weren't the ventilators that he said he was going to do. And, and at some point, uh, Governor Newsom in California uh, said in a press conference that he wasn't aware of any uh, ventilators having been given to hospitals in California at which point Elon Musk tweeted back and gave a list of all the hospitals that had acknowledged them and thanked him. Um, but it's just the whole story was based on just this schadenfreude, this, you know, oh, you know, he's a phony, or oh, we haven't gotten anything. And then the media runs with it, and uh, all of a sudden CNN, who, who reported it, looks, uh, looks like fake news. It's just the, the, the tendency we have to jump to conclusions and to paint things in the darkest light makes us unpersuasive to others, people that we'd like to bring into agreement, that we'd like to find common ground with. Makes me... <clears throat> want to turn to my old friend Anthony DeMello. He says this, Anytime you have a negative feeling toward anyone, you're living in an illusion. There's something seriously wrong with you. You're not seeing reality. Something inside of you has to change. But what do we generally do when we have a negative feeling? He's to blame. She's to blame. She's got to change. He says, no, the world is all right. The one who has to change is you. Later he says, suppose you witness some out-and-out -out injustice, something that is obviously and objectively wrong. 
would it not be a proper reaction to say this should not be happening? Should you somehow want to involve yourself in correcting a situation that's wrong? Someone's injuring a child and you see abuse going on? How about that kind of thing? I hope you did not assume that I was saying you shouldn't do anything. I said that if you didn't have negative feelings, you'd be much more effective, much more effective. Because when negative feelings come in, you go blind. Me steps into the picture and everything gets fouled up. Where we had one problem on our hands before, now we have two. Many wrongly assume that not having negative feelings like anger and resentment and hate means that you do nothing about a situation. Oh no, no. You are not affected emotionally, but you spring into action. You become very sensitive to things and people around you. What kills the sensitivity is what many people would call the conditioned self. When you so identify with me that there's too much of me in it for you to see th things objectively and with detachment. It's very important that when you swing into action, you be able to see things with detachment, but negative emotions prevent that. One of the, uh, of the things I've reflected on a lot is a lot of that, uh, a lot of the problem, a lot of the nature of our outrage is the fact that to a large extent, we don't have a whole lot of power. We're not in charge. Um, we can certainly take action. We can write to our congressman. We can uh, talk to others, but most of the others we talk to are already feeling the way we do. Simply going into a rage isn't going to help. So much of the good we do in the world is because we're open and responsive to the people around us. Rather than suspecting them of supporting the wrong side or looking for what they're doing wrong, to give a human response understand we're really all in this together this this current p pandemic is not our first rodeo so to speak uh, <clears throat> human beings have been through plagues and pandemics many many times throughout the course of history and I came across actually my wife pointed out to me an article by a guy I really respect. His name is Orhan Pamuk. hope I'm pronouncing that wrong fairly well. Pamuk, perhaps. Uh, he's a Turkish novelist. Actually, he won the Nobel Prize in 2006. And uh, this is an article that was published in the New York Times. Let's see, the date of the article is April 23rd, 2020. And the title of it is What the Great Pandemic Novels Teach Us. <clears throat> and he says, this is written from Istanbul, where, where he lives. For the past four years, I've been writing a historical novel set in 1901 during what is known as a third plague pandemic, an outbreak of bubonic plague that killed millions of people in Asia, but not very many in Europe. Probably why we know very little or nothing about it. Over the past two months, friends and family, editors and journalists who know the subject of that novel, Nights of Plague, 
have been asking me a barrage of questions about pandemics. They are most curious about similarities between the current coronavirus pandemic and the historical outbreaks of plague and cholera. There is an overabundance of similarities. Throughout human and literary history, what makes pandemics alike is not mere commonality of germs and viruses, but that our initial responses were always the same. The initial response to the outbreak of a pandemic has always been denial. National and local governments have always been late to respond and have distorted facts and manipulated figures to deny the existence of the outbreak. In the early pages of a journal of the plague year, the single most illuminating work of literature ever written on contagion and human behavior, Daniel Defoe reports that in 1664, local authorities in some neighborhoods of London tried to make the number of plague deaths appear lower than it was by registering other invented diseases as the recorded causes of death. In the 1827 novel, The Betrothed, perhaps the most realist novel ever written about an outbreak of plague, the Italian writer Alessandro Manzoni describes and supports the local population's anger at the official response to the 1630 plague in Milan. In spite of the evidence, the governor of Milan ignores the threat posed by the disease and will not even cancel a local prince's birthday celebrations. Manzoni showed that the plague spread rapidly because the restrictions introduced were insufficient. Their enforcement was lax, and his fellow citizens didn't heed them. Much of the literature of plague and contagious diseases presents the carelessness, incompetence, and selfishness of those in power as the sole instigator of the fury of the masses. But the best writers, such as Defoe and Camus, allowed their readers a glimpse at something other than politics lying beneath the wave of popular fury, something intrinsic to the human condition. Defoe's novel, again, that's a journal of the plague year, shows us that behind the endless, endless remonstrances and boundless rage, there also lies an anger against fate, against a divine will that witnesses and perhaps even condones all this death and human suffering, and a rage against the institutions of organized religion that seem unsure how to deal with any of it. Humanity's other universal and seemingly unprompted response to pandemics has always been to create rumors and spread false information. During past pandemics, rumors were mainly fueled by misinformation and the impossibility of seeing the future picture. Defoe and Manzoni wrote about people keeping their distance when they met each other in the streets during the plagues, but also asking each other for news and stories from their respective hometowns and neighborhoods so that they might piece together a broader picture of the disease. Only through that wider view could they hope to escape death and find a safe place to shelter. In a world without newspapers, radio, television, or internet, the illiterate majority had only their imaginations with which to fathom where the danger lay, its severity, and the extent of the torment it could cause. This reliance on imagination gave each person's fear its own individual voice 
and imbued it with a lyrical quality, localized, spiritual, and mythical. The most common rumors during outbreaks of plague were about who had brought the disease in and where it had come from. Around mid-March, as panic and fear began to spread through Turkey, this is coming into the present now, the manager of my bank in Giangish, my neighborhood in Istanbul, told me that with a knowing air that this thing was China's economic retort to the United States and the rest of the world. Like evil itself, plague was always portrayed as something that had come from outside. It had struck elsewhere before, and not enough had been done to contain it. In his account of the spread of the plague in Athens, Thucydides began by noting that the outbreak had started far away in Ethiopia and Egypt. The disease is foreign, it comes from outside, it is brought in with malicious intent. Rumors about the supposed identity of its original carriers are always the most persuasive and popular. <clears throat> and of course we have a situation here in this country where that line of thinking is actually encouraged by our president. In The Betrothed, Manzoni describes a, f a figure that has been a fixture of the popular imagination during outbreaks of plague since the Middle Ages. Every day there would be a rumor about this malevolent, demonic presence who went about in the dark, smearing plague-infected liquid on doorknobs and water fountains. Or perhaps a tired old man who sat down to rest on the floor inside a church would be accused by a woman passing by of having rubbed his coat around to spread the disease and soon a lynch mob would gather. These unexpected and uncontrollable outbursts of violence, hearsay, panic, and rebellion are common in accounts of plague epidemics from the Renaissance on. Marcus Aurelius blamed Christians in the Roman Empire for the Antoine smallpox plague as they did not join in the rituals to propitiate the Roman gods. And during subsequent plagues, Jews were accused of poisoning both the wells in both the Ottoman Empire and Christian Europe. The literature and history of plagues shows us that the intensity of the suffering, of the fear of death, of the metaphysical dread, and of the sense of the uncanny experienced by the stricken populace will also determine the depth of their anger and political discontent. <clears throat> and then bring this, bringing us up to date, he says, as with those old plague pandemics, unfounded rumors and accusations based on nationalist, religious, ethnic, and relig regionalist identity have had a significant effect on how events have unfolded during the coronavirus outbreak. The social medias and right-wing populist media's penchant for amplifying lies has also played a part. But... Today we have access to a dramatically greater volume of reliable information about the pandemic we are living through than people have ever had in any previous pandemic. And I think even of the 1918 uh, flu, so the so-called Spanish flu, flu pandemic, where really so little was known and so much of what was going on was suppressed in this country because it was felt that to 
tell the truth would in some way damage the war effort. <clears throat> the reason it's called the Spanish flu is because Spain was a neutral party in the war and didn't have any reason to suppress, suppress the fact that the flu was active in Spain. They were simply the only country telling the truth. So we have the Spanish flu. Anyway, more information about the pandemic we are living through than people have ever had in any previous pandemic. That is also what makes the powerful and justifiable fear we are all feeling today so different. Our terror is fed less by rumors and based more on accurate information. As we see the red dots on the maps of our countries and the world multiply, we realize there is nowhere left to escape to. We do not even need to we do not even need our imagination to start fearing the worst. We watch videos of convoys of big black army trucks carrying dead bodies from small Italian towns to nearby crematories as if we were watching our own funeral possessions, processions. The terror we are feeling, however, excludes imagination and individuality, and it reveals how unexpectedly, unexpectedly similar our fragile lives and shared humanity really are. Fear, like the thought of dying, makes us feel alone, but the recognition that we are all experiencing a similar anguish draws us out of our loneliness. The knowledge that the whole of humanity, from Thailand to New York, shares our anxieties about how and where to use a face mask, the safest way to deal with the food we have bought from the grocer, and whether to self-quarantine is a constant reminder that we are not alone. It begets a sense of solidarity. We are no longer mortified by our fear. We discover a humility in it that encourages mutual understanding. When I watch the televised images of people waiting outside the world's biggest hospitals, I can see that my terror is shared by the rest of humanity and I do not feel alone. In time, I feel less ashamed of my fear and increasingly come to see it as a perfectly sensible response. I am reminded of that adage about pandemics and plagues that those who are afraid live longer. Actually, uh, <clears throat> I read somewhere that one of the re reasons for the prevalence of anxiety-prone people in the gene pool is that uh, human groups needed those people, those people who saw the danger, who were tuned in to what was wrong in order to keep everyone safe. <clears throat> of course, it's not fun to be that anxious person. He goes on, eventually I realize that fear elicits two distinct responses in me and perhaps in all of us. Sometimes it causes me to withdraw into myself towards solitude and silence, but other times it teaches me to be humble and to practice solidarity. I would, I would question here whether those two are necessarily so separate. When we truly withdraw into silence, let the mind fall silent let our accusations and judgments drop away. We find humility and we find solidarity. This is the promise of Zen practice.
going to skip ahead a bit in this. He talks a lot about uh, uh, the different ways that different areas and different religions have reacted to the plague. Apparently the Muslim religion has a reputation for uh, not being as willing to quarantine and to go on with the uh, elements of religious life. Of course, we've seen that here with a lot of Christian churches insisting on holding Easter services despite the danger of spreading the, uh, the virus. Says the picture we glean from numerous local historical accounts tells us that even during major plague pandemics, mosques in Istanbul still conducted funerals, mourners still visit one, visited one another to offer condolences and tearful embraces. And rather than worrying about where the disease had come from and how it was spreading, people were more concerned about being adequately prepared for the next funeral. Yet during the current coronavirus pandemic, the Turkish government has taken a secular approach, banning funerals for those who have died of the disease and making the unambiguous decision to shut mosques on Fridays when worshipers would ordinarily gather in large groups for the week's most important prayer. The Turks have not opposed these measures. As great as our fear is, it is also wise and forbearing. For a better world to emerge after this pandemic, we must embrace and nourish the feelings of humility and solidarity engendered by the current moment. <clears throat> it's a shock when we realize that we're not safe. How long can we avoid the virus. What if there isn't a what if there if is never a vaccine? <clears throat> what then? Angela Merkel said uh, at some point that likely within a year, sixty to seventy percent of Germans would have the virus. For some of us, maybe for most of us, it's just going to be a bad flu. But for many, and there's very difficult to predict, it's life-threatening life-altering. When we realize that we're all at risk, those of us who do the so-called right thing and those who we feel are doing the wrong thing, maybe we can find a way to do what Pamuk is talking about, feel our solidarity with all human beings. The sixth, sixth patriarch of Zen, Weineng, said, when others are wrong, I am wrong. When I am wrong, I alone am responsible. Say that again. When others are wrong, I am wrong. Of course I'm wrong. The minute I separate myself from others and stand in judgment to them, I'm in error. I too am wrong. But when I am wrong, who is there to blame? That just adds more wrong to it. He said this as well. I found this last night, pawing through the interweb. If we truly practice the Dharma, we will not see fault anywhere. 
if we see the deficiencies of others, our criticisms are in themselves manifestations of our own faults. Others may be wrong, but we do not criticize, for if we criticize, we are already at fault. We have only to be rid of our censorious minds to start abolishing our defilements and anxieties. <clears throat> the great way is not difficult for those who do not pick and choose. We have only to be rid of our censorious minds, that is, our minds that censure others, criticize others, to start abolishing our own defilements and anxieties. When the mind is no longer concerned with likes and dislikes, then it can be at ease, as if we were asleep with our legs fully stretched. If we want to be able to help others, we must ourselves have the open-minded helpfulness. <clears throat> Just to repeat what Anthony DeMello said, this doesn't mean we can't take action. There's a story that uh, the Indian sage lived in the 1800s, Ramakrishna, told uh, of a snake uh, that uh, was counseled by a sage not to bite others. The snake, of course, was poisonous. And uh, the snake took it to heart and vowed to no longer uh, bite people with his deadly venom. And, uh, of course, the sage came back to check on the snake sometime later and found uh, him bedraggled and beaten and asked what had happened. And he said, well, now that I don't bite, all the young boys have pummeled me. They seek me out and they, they, they attack me. And the sage said, I told you not to bite. I didn't tell you not to hiss. It's all a question of whether or not we keep our balance. Whether or not we poison ourselves with our anger at others. It's a lot about that that I used to hear in AA. It's like dropping a grenade in your own trench. The hormones and the neurotransmitters that are released when you fly into irritation and rage, they don't hurt others, they hurt you. Of course, your unskillful actions can hurt others and it can engender rage in them. We're challenged in this practice to find a way to do what needs to be done without blaming, to keep our understanding, to be part of the solution. It's not easy to do, and inevitably, we're going to lose our shit. When things get really tough, our programming kicks in and we say and do things that later on we may regret. That's just normal. That's where we are, where, where we're at today. It's our, it's our point of practice. It shows us where there's work to be done. But the more that we can find that quiet, non-judgmental place, that true self that is no self, 
that bodhisattva within, that hears the cries of humanity, who understands with sympathy and compassion the ways of human beings, the unending series of mistakes that all of us make. Find a way to help. Sometimes help is just a smile. Sometimes it's just a happy exchange with <clears throat> a clerk or a waiter or a waitress. Of course, we don't get a whole lot of chance to do that during the pandemic. I do a lot of walking in my neighborhood. I've got my dog to justify my going out. And from a distance of <clears throat> more than 10 feet, I have a chance to talk with my neighbors. And it's, it's wonderful. I don't ask them what they think about politics. If they don't have a mask, I don't criticize them. Don't always have a mask myself. But I, I just am, am buoyed by the fact that we're all in this together. And, and fortunate that we live in a time when there is reliable news. When people do have goodwill, when there's less of the rumor mongering that happened in the pit plagues a hundred or two hundred or more years ago. Encouraged by the warmth in the Sangha, the, the Zoom sittings that we've initiated, how many people have joined in those. I think everybody is, is thinking, what can we bring out of this current situation? What can we bring back to our lives when inevitably, finally, we can venture back out again? Life goes back to whatever the new normal is. We have this opportunity during this time, many of us, to be in silence, to have things slowed down. It's a shame to waste that silence in compulsively reading over article after article after article, <clears throat> speaking to myself here to some extent. How wonderful it is to take some time just to to walk outside, to sit alone in a room, to do zazen, to let the mind go still, and to find ways to reach out to family and to friends with whatever technology we have. Roshi Kaplow used to say, everything is grist for the mill. Everything is an occasion for practice. Of course, <clears throat> this current situation, as much as any before. Well, <clears throat> I've used up my time. Stop now and recite the four vows. <clears throat> 